If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians, and we're in chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I want to say just a a brief word about parent-child dedication. Uh, Melanie and her team do such a good job of helping us get set for this. And listen, the parent-child dedication is important, but really this is just the starting point for all the ways that our children's ministry will impact these children and their families in the days to come. And one of the greatest contributions you can make, I believe, in Nacogdoches, Texas, at First Baptist Church of Nacogdoches, one of the greatest investments you can make in the future is to find a way to be involved in our children's ministry. They have so many needs, they have places for you to serve. Find a way to be a part of this very, very important ministry. So we're in Ephesians chapter one. Uh, Today we're working our way through the book of Ephesians, but we're popping around from from one part to the other. Uh, I promise there is a method to the madness, even if it's hard to see. And so today we come back to Ephesians one, where we spent a number of weeks a few weeks ago. As we look at this passage today, I wanna begin by sharing with you what really is the most concerning thing, uh, I'm not exaggerating if I say the most painful thing about being a pastor, and that is seeing people who uh, seemingly have made a profession of faith, have put their trust in Jesus Christ, but only to see those people struggle because of some spiritual illness. It's common, it's too common, and it breaks my heart, it breaks all of our hearts when we see people struggle with these spiritual illnesses. I've made a list of some. Uh, I think one spiritual illness I'm gonna call the resignation. Sometimes people who have seemingly made a commitment to Christ will just decide at some point that Christianity doesn't work for me. It doesn't do what I thought it would do. I don't feel the peace or the joy that I thought I would have. It's too frustrating, it's not helpful, and I will turn my back on my faith, the resignation. That's a very serious spiritual illness. But the next one is just as serious, I call it the fade. Uh, The person with this spiritual illness never made a decision, some big life-changing decision to turn his back on Christ, but a little bit at a time, He has drifted, she has drifted away. And in the end, it's the same result as the one that has resigned from the faith over a period of six months or six years. Who knows, the person has has fully separated himself from the Lord. The spiritual illness I call the fade. The next one, the trade. The fade or the trade. Sometimes people walking with the Lord will be so enamored with a sin, some pet sin we might call it, or maybe it is a sinful relationship and they know that they can't embrace both Christ and that sin. They can't embrace both Christ and that sinful relationship and they'll just simply make a trade. They will trade their faith for for the longings of their hearts. It's a spiritual illness and it leads them away from Christ. The next spiritual illness I have is what I call the flicker. Uh, you know what it means for a flame to flicker, so it's, uh, it's bright and it's dim, it's bright and it's dim, and some people, this is their spiritual illness. They, 
They seem to be all focused and walking with the Lord and they're excited about the things of God. They flicker bright, but then they flicker dim. And, and sometimes you wonder if the, if the flame has even gone out and then maybe later they flicker bright and flicker dim, the flicker. And then finally, the self-deception where people will have the outward appearance of faith, but at the same time, they have fully embraced the world and they deceive themselves, maybe others, but at least themselves, and it's a spiritual illness that drives them from the Lord. So how can a person who is a child of God, or at least they seem to us to be a child of God, experience these spiritual illnesses? How could it be that so many people, this is their story, and they're excited about the things of God, and you're thinking of some of those right now, but they've just faded, or they've resigned, or they flickered out? How could someone who has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, who has the Holy Spirit within him, how can that person suffer from these spiritual illnesses. I'm gonna chase a little bit of a rabbit trail this morning before we get into the scripture passage, but let me tell you why I think that is. I think almost 100% of the time when somebody suffers from one of these spiritual illnesses, it is because they have thought about the Christian faith as a line that we cross or it is a box that we check. It is a, a destination and we arrive and we're done. You know what I mean? They feel like, they believe, they've embraced the fact that Christianity, as long as I've prayed a certain prayer, as long as I have joined a church, been baptized, as long as I've done certain things, that I am there and it is over. I have checked that box. And we think that that's all there is to the Christian faith. And, and it's that attitude, I believe, that leads us, that makes us so susceptible to these spiritual illnesses. About five years ago, I moved from Ohio to Texas. I traded bad weather for good, bad barbecue for good barbecue, <laughs> cornfields for cow pastures. But once I completed my move, I was here. I'm not more a resident of Texas now four and a half years later than I was before. I haven't little bit at a time gotten more I don't know, official as a citizen of the state. No, I moved here and it was done. I woke up one morning as a resident and a citizen of Ohio and I went to bed that night as a resident and a citizen of Texas. But that's not how the Christian faith works. Now, I'm not denying that when a person puts his faith and trust in Christ that God saves us instantly. It's, it's not a process for us to be justified, forgiven of our sins, adopted into the family of God, that happens in an instant. No question about that. But I'm telling you that there is more to the Christian life than just crossing the line and checking the box and arriving at the destination. The Christian faith is described in the Bible, salvation is described in the Bible both as, a, both as a past tense event, the Bible says, and the word we use for this is justification, the Bible says we have been saved, but the Bible also talks about salvation as a present tense event. We use the word sanctification. 
the Bible says, I am being saved. And the Bible even talks about salvation as a future event. We call that glorification. One day I will be saved. But the point of all of it is that while salvation definitely has a beginning, it also has a middle and it will have a glorious and an eternal end. But we're today in the middle. If we've been through the beginning, I should say, then we're in the middle. We are not at the end. We must understand if we're going to avoid these spiritual illnesses that salvation has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so as a Christian, I must search, search for ways that I can grow closer to the Lord. As a Christian, I must learn to pursue Christ. As a Christian, I must learn to cooperate with the Holy Spirit who is in my life and who is guiding me and changing me and forming the character of Christ in me. I cannot look at my faith as just a a line that I have crossed. I've got to see it as a journey that I'm still on, that God is not finished. He's just starting with what he wants to do in me and through me. But when we think we've arrived... We have set ourselves up. There's not a person here so good that you're immune from this. We have set ourselves up for these spiritual illnesses. I want to read to you what the Apostle Paul said about his heart uh, for, for living in that middle part of salvation. Now, we're going to get to Ephesians 1 in just a moment, so keep, keep your focus there. But let me just read to you something that Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. He talked about his personal approach. He says, I have not reached the goal, nor am I already perfect. But I make every effort because I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. So one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize, the promise of God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Now think about the Apostle Paul. He says he wasn't there. He says he hadn't arrived. What could he have meant by that? He didn't mean he wasn't saved. He was. He was forgiven. He was a child of God. He'd been justified. He he didn't mean that he didn't have enough theological information. This is the Apostle Paul who had written the book of Romans. It didn't mean that he had some disqualifying sin in his life. He meant that Though he knew Christ, he didn't know him all the way. Though he had experienced Christ, he had not experienced him all the way. Though he had joy, he didn't have all the joy that he could have as a a follower of Christ. He says, I've not yet taken hold of the prize. I've not yet fully surrendered to God. I've, I've not yet... Learned all I could learn, to understand all I could understand, to praise God like I could praise God. He said, I'm still in the middle. The way to avoid the spiritual illnesses that will shipwreck our faith is to recognize we're still in the middle. Now, Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul prays for these Christians that he sends this letter to, Christians in the church at Ephesus. Uh, He prays for them twice, in fact. One we see here in in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 15, you'll see a prayer that's almost the same in its subject matter over in Ephesians chapter 3. We may look over there if we have time in a moment. 
But this is what Paul prays for the, for the Christians there. Wouldn't you be in, wouldn't you, aren't you interested in knowing what Paul prayed? Did he pray for money? Did he pray for safety? Did he pray for health? What did Paul pray for when he prayed for the church, the people in the church at Ephesus? Well, listen, he prayed that they would understand they were in the middle and that they would know some things about being in the middle that they would understand that being in the middle means we need to pursue Christ to get to the end. He wanted them to know and grow in their Christian faith. So let's look at this. Verse 15, and we'll go through the outline if you're writing it down. We're just going to go through it as I read the scripture verses. But verse 15, he says, this is why since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. And so he's praying, and the prayer begins, verse 17. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now let's stop there. If you're looking at your outline, uh, the first... The first thing we see here, a mark of maturity, what it would be true if a person is pursuing the Lord, he will have this attitude, I want to know him. I want to know Christ, you could write down. And Paul says here that I pray that you would have, look at it, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Someone who knows he's in the middle will have a desire to know Christ more. Now you might say, well, pastor, what, what in the world does that mean? Of course, Paul knew Christ. And of course, of course I know Christ, but there are a lot of different ways we can know someone, right? There's some people I know of, you know what I mean? I know that some people exist. I might know their names, that there's somebody that, uh, checked me out at a, at a, um, Walmart in Lufkin somewhere, and I, and I noticed his name, or I noticed her name, and so I know of that person. Don't know anything about him, but I know of him. Well, then there are some people I know about. Maybe I know their story. Maybe I've read a biography of them. I read a couple of biographies a couple of weeks ago of Isaac Watts, the hymn writer. Just fascinating story of of how this man lived for the Lord and some of the things that he did and how that impacts even the way we worship today. And, and while I don't know Isaac Watts in the way I know some people, I know a whole lot more about him than I did a couple of weeks ago, I know about some people. Well, then there are some people that I've met. I've not met Isaac Watts, and so I don't know him in that sense, but there's some people I've, I've met and I know a little of their story and I know what they look like. Maybe I know where they live. I know their the names of people in their family. And then there are some people I know well. They're friends and, and I know um, all about them. I know the things they're excited about and I know the things that they fear and I know what's coming up next in their life and I know the things they're praying for and I'm praying for them. I, I think about the men I meet with each week and just what an encouragement they are to me and, and I hope I can be some encouragement to them and I know something about what's going on in their lives enough to pray for them. And they're, So there are some people I know at a little deeper level. And then... There are the people that live at my house. And I know them, not all of them, but I know some of them pretty well. And I know, I know their struggles and I know the things that, that they're excited about. So 
when we say we know something, somebody, that can mean a lot of different things. Paul certainly knew the Lord. If you're a child of God, you know the Lord. But Paul recognized that he could know him in a greater, in a greater way. And see, someone who understands that they're in the middle understands that there is more to know with Christ. Not just know about Christ, but to know Christ. Paul said in Philippians 3.10, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. He said, I want to know him in some sort of experiential way. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. And so a person that recognizes he's in the middle will have this attitude, I want to know him. Now, secondly, I want to know the purpose of his work in me. Now, let's continue to read verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know, and he's going to say two things, and we see the first one here, that you may know what is the hope of his glorious calling. What does that mean? His glorious calling, that's what he plans to do in us. You see, a person who is maturing in his faith, a person who is growing spiritually, will be a person who knows that God is still at work in us, that God is still trying to accomplish things, that God still has a hope for us and a purpose and a plan for our lives. What does God want to do for us? Well, he wants to do many things. He wants to conform us to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 29, we will be conformed to the image of his son. See, I need to be mindful that God is working on me behind the scenes and little bit at a time, he is changing my character. He is changing my heart, my passions, my integrity to be like that of Christ. We gotta be excited about that. Another thing he wants to do is finish the work that he has begun. Philippians 1, 6, he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion. God's marching on in my life. There's so much more he wants to do. And ultimately, he wants to save me completely. 1 John 3, 2, when he appears, we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. One day I will be glorified. I will be made in character, fully like the character of Jesus Christ. And so a person who is growing spiritually will understand he will understand that there is more that God wants to do. There is a purpose that God has in his, in his life. The third thing that he will know, I want to know of his love for me. Now we'll look back at verse 18. And to see this, you really have to read the whole verse, although our focus will be at the end. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know, so that you may know, and then we saw the first thing, the hope, that, the hope of his calling. But then look at the second thing. What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now listen, you're probably a lot smarter than I am, but I've never noticed this word inheritance and how it is situated in verse 18. I don't think I've ever noticed this before. If I did, I forgot it. Inheritance. What is he talking about, this glorious inheritance? Well, I preached on the inheritance from the book of Ephesians about seven or eight weeks ago, but I preached from, I think, verse 14. No? Somewhere, earlier. 
and it's not in my notes, but if you look for it, you'll find it. We should look for it. Somebody in the celebration service, be smart enough to find it. Okay. Heritage, heritage. It's there. Just trust me. It was there, so I'm sure it's still there. Nothing ever changes in God's word. So we talked about inheritance a few weeks ago, but there was something different about that inheritance and this inheritance. What's the difference? That inheritance, wherever it is in here, is it says 114. Well, that's just what I said, and I got it wrong. 11 and 14. 14 is what I was looking for. It, it, the word's broken up in my Bible in two lines. I, wanna, I want you to give me some grace. He is the down payment of our inheritance. I knew it was in there. Our inheritance. Now, what's the difference in that inheritance and this inheritance in verse 18? This is gigantic, church. In verse 14, it's our inheritance. We know what that is. That's heaven. It's more than that, but it's at least that, right? That's our inheritance. But in verse 18, it's not our inheritance. It's his inheritance. Well, what is his inheritance? What is it that God is so looking forward to? Have you ever thought about that? I look forward to all kinds of things. There are things I don't have that I want to have, places I've not been that I want to be, experiences I haven't had that I want to have. I look forward to things in life, and so do you. What in the world does God look forward to? What could be his inheritance? Well, he tells us here at the, at the end of verse 18, the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The saints are the inheritance of God. Who are the saints? We are the saints. A saint is someone who has been sanctified. A saint is someone who has been saved. If you're a child of God, you are a saint, biblically speaking. And so God says that his inheritance, what God is looking forward to, is to have us fully with him. How does that make you feel? Listen to it as it, as it reads in the NLT. It's a Bible paraphrase, but sometimes it, it just gives us some extra clarity. He says, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you will understand the confident hope he has given to those he called his people who are his rich and his glorious inheritance. God loves me so much he can't wait until I'm with him. He can't wait until I'm fully saved. He is anxious for it. He is looking forward to it. I am his inheritance. I'm what he's looking forward to. Can you imagine that? I think sometimes I am guilty of preaching so much on the substitutionary atonement. You know what that is? I try to say it in, in every sermon I preach, even though I don't use that phrase, that I'm guilty of sin, I'm separated from God, there was no hope for me. Jesus Christ died. He paid the debt I owed. He was my substitute. And so God, because Christ paid, then God rescues me and saves me and I'm a child of God. And, and, and that certainly is exactly biblical truth. But I think sometimes when we say that, we unintentionally feel that, that God has just sort of accepted us because he has to. I mean, we're, here we are, dirty, rotten sinners, and Jesus died for us, and God's like, well, their sins are paid for. I can't think of any other reason to keep them out. I mean, I don't want them here messing up heaven and 
getting everything dirty and out of order, but I'll accept the people because Jesus paid for them. And, and, and I'm afraid, while I, I would never say this, but I'm, I'm afraid that sometimes we leave people the impression that, that God's just doing this because he has to. But I want you to see the Bible says just the opposite of that. God loves me so much. I am his inheritance. He is looking forward to my full salvation. Listen to how, how the Bible says it in some other verses. This one will sound familiar. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What was God's motivation? God loved us. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will delight in you with singing. I don't know that that appears anywhere else in the Bible, and I didn't look this week. But this verse seems to say that while I'll sing when I see the Lord, that the Lord will sing when he sees me. That's how much God loves us. 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are, it says. Have you ever maybe been through a hard situation with somebody in your family, maybe it was a spouse, or maybe your children, it was just something hard, they, they rebelled, they... they um, disappointed you, there was the division, but your greatest longing was that somehow they might know that through all of the words that have been said and all of the water under the bridge, that you love them more than life itself. You ever been in that situation? where you thought they have no idea just how deep my love runs. They have no idea the lengths I would go to for them. They have no idea just how much their life, their joy, their peace, and their presence, how much that means to me. You ever been in that situation? That's where the Lord is for us. We have no idea how much he loves us. We are his inheritance. I like how it uh, is written in, in the other prayer over in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. It describes God's love there. When This is right in the middle of that prayer that Paul prayed. May, may they uh, be able to comprehend, comprehend what is the length and width, the height and the depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. I like that because it says, I, I pray that they'll know something that is unknowable. What is the unknowable thing? Just how much God loves us. And then the final thing, those people who recognize that they live in the middle. I have been saved. I will be saved. I'm in the middle, though. I'm being saved. Uh, verse 19, notice he says that they will want to know his power. It says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. Uh, the Greek word here for power is the word we get our word dynam pardon me, dynamite from. And the word working here is the Greek word we get our word energy from. He's talking about a great power, a great energy. Now what kind of, what kind of things does this power do? Paul says, I'm praying that they will better know God's power. God's power to do what? 
Well, God's power to impact our lives, God's power to help us overcome sin, God's power to help us endure hardships, God's power to help us to get through hard times, God's power to help us deny the urge to compromise or maybe the urge to express our anger in some ungodly way, the power to stand firm when it may cost us dearly. Those are hard things to do. But the power of God, the Holy Spirit in us, those things are possible. And so Paul prays that we might know and know in a greater way the power of God. One of the things I pray and pray often is, Lord, help me to see more of your power in my life. And I don't mean power on the outside. I I don't need power to do something. I mean power on the inside, power to overcome sin, power to go through hardships, power to stand when standing is hard. God, give me power. And Paul prayed that they would know God's power. You see, we have hundreds of people here today and then those that are watching online and watching our broadcast. Hundreds of people, maybe over a thousand people when you take all that into consideration. Many of you, I'm, I'm one of you, many of us, in the next weeks or months will have a spiritual illness because we have failed to continue to pursue the Lord. We have lived like we have arrived and we don't recognize we're just in the middle of the race. And it's not that we have to do something to finish in order to be saved. He who has started a good work in us will finish it. But we are in the middle. And spiritual illness comes to those who stagnate there. In your outline, I give you some tools to help pursue the Lord. I'm not going to preach through these, but I'll I'll give you the blanks and you see the scripture verses if you have an outline there. And I would encourage you just to take a look at these, to, to focus on these. These are the ways we pursue the Lord when we recognize we're in the middle. Number one, we draw near. James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God is the one who will do the drawing. And so it's not up to us, but the beginning, the beginning depends upon us. Draw near to God. And let her be decrease. John 3, 30, he must increase and I must decrease. How do I pursue the Lord? I, I look for ways for my life to be more about Christ and less about me. See, discipline, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body and bring it under straight control so that after preaching to others, I myself may not be disqualified. I, I discipline my body. It's the Holy Spirit that brings change, but we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in that change. We discipline our bodies. The final one is, is demonstrate. This requires a little bit of an explanation, but Psalm 95, 6 David says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our maker. You know, we all pray, right? But how do we pray? Most often we pray sitting down, two feet on the floor, one hiney in the seat, leaning back. Maybe we close our eyes, bow our heads, and we pray. I challenge you to find anybody in the Bible that ever prays like that. I wonder, 
And I more than wonder, but I wonder if we gave some demonstration to our reverence for the Lord, if our posture would change our hearts and set it on fire. I, uh, I'm finished for the year, by the way, pulling for my football team. Um, three strikes are out kind of thing, and so I've really been finished for a while. Uh, but when I watched them yesterday, I was, uh, at least the first half of the game, I, I've learned we win more games if I turn it off at halftime. <laughs> I didn't just sit with my arms folded, my legs crossed, my recliner, you know, watch it like it's uh, my wife's cooking show or something. I, uh, I was given advice. I was uh, trying to help the team. I, I, um, I helped the referees a little bit. Um, I advised the announcers when they uh, didn't know what to announce. Um, I, I watched with my whole being. But when I pray, it's like I don't really care. I sit with no special posture and no special energy. Listen, listen to how Jesus prayed. Luke twenty two forty one. 41, he withdrew from them, knelt down, and began to pray. Matthew 26, 39, going a little further, he fell face down and prayed. Uh, in the Bible, it says that many people stood and prayed. Psalm 28, 2, I lift my hands toward your holy sanctuary. 1 Timothy 2, 8, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. How did Paul pray when he left the church at Ephesus to go on his, continue on his missionary journey? Acts chapter 20, verse 36, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. In the Bible, when they prayed, they prayed as if, listen to this, as if they were coming before a holy God a mighty God, the creator of the universe. And they bowed or they stood or they, or they laid face down in humility and they, and they prayed not just with their, with their nod or with their thoughts or even with their vocal words, but they prayed with everything they had. We need to pursue the Lord. Pray however you want to pray, okay? There's no command that says you have to pray this way or that way. I'm just telling you that there is a pattern, and we've created a, an entirely new pattern in the last 250 years, and I'm scratching my head wondering why that is. But I'm saying that, that if we're going to avoid the spiritual illnesses that will shipwreck our faith, then we have got to understand that we have not arrived, but we are in the middle. And while our salvation is secure and it is certain and it will never be ruined, that we are in the journey and we should continue to pursue the Lord. We should discipline ourselves. We should draw near to God. We should, we should decrease and make our lives more and more about Christ. And we should pray like our heart is in our prayers. Spiritual illness comes when we think we've arrived and when we ignore our spiritual growth. Just your head bowed and eyes closed. Listen, I just want to say one more thing, and I just want you to be as still as you can be while I say it. I don't want to give you a guilt trip or a long list of to-dos 
Here's the truth of the matter. The, the greatest spiritual growth I've experienced from time to time in my life was never about me making some big commitment to read my Bible six hours a day or change some big giant thing. No, the Lord draws near to us. Here's the good thing. The Lord is so gracious and merciful. The Lord will grow you. The Lord will mature you. You just got to see that you're in the middle. Father in heaven, thank you for my salvation. I've put my trust in Christ. Thank you for my salvation. But I look forward to more because you're not finished. And Lord, I'm not finished. I want to know you better. I want to know of your love. I want to know more of your purpose. I want to know more of your power. May I pursue you, the one I love, every day of my life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond.